0: Chapter eight of the Fall River tragedy by Edwin H. Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight a sermon on the murders on Saturday the case took on an unexpected phase. Superintendent O. M. Hanscom of the Boston office of the Pinkerton Detective Agency appeared on the scene. He was not employed by the mayor of Fall River nor the marshal of police and it soon became noised abroad that he was present in the interests of the mrs borden with the avowed intention of clearing up the mystery in company with mr jennings he visited the borden house and was in consultation with members of the family for about two hours detective hanscom remained in fall river nearly two days and then disappeared as mysteriously as he came it was the universal opinion at the time that the pinkertons would unearth the assassin in a short while but the public was never informed as to the reasons why they withdrew from the case it was believed however that there was a rupture between marshal hilliard's men and the pinkertons this may or may not have been the cause of their sudden disappearance sunday morning the central church worshippers met with the first church congregation in the stone church on main street All of the pews were filled, many being in their seats, some half-hour before the service began. It was supposed that the Reverend W. Walker Jubb, who occupied the pulpit, would make some allusion to the awful experiences through which one family in his charge had been compelled to pass during the week, and the supposition was correct. Mr. Jubb read for the morning lesson a portion of Matthew, containing the significant words which imply that what is concealed shall be revealed. In his prayer, Mr. Jubb evoked the divine blessing on the community, rendering thanks for the blessings bestowed on many, and pausing, referred to the murder of two innocent persons. He prayed fervently that right might prevail, and that in good time the terrible mystery might be cleared away, that the people of the city might do everything in their power to assist the authorities, and asked for divine guidance for the police, that they might prosecute unflinchingly and unceasingly the search for the murderer. Mr. Jubb prayed that their hands might be strengthened, that their movements might be characterized by discretion, and that wisdom and great power of discernment might be given to them in their work. And while we hope, he continued, for the triumph of justice, let our acts be tempered with mercy. Help us to refrain from giving voice to those insinuations and innuendos which we have no right to utter. Save us from blasting a life innocent and blameless. Keep us from taking the sweetness from the future. By our ill-advised words and let us be charitable as we remember the poor grief-stricken family and minister unto them the clergyman asked that those who were writing of the crime might be careful of the reputations of the living which could so easily be undermined for his text mr job took the first chapter of ecclesiastes ninth verse the thing that hath been is that which shall be and that which is done is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the sun. The speaker continued the monotonies of life, and expatiated on the causes of indifference in persons who would be nothing if not geniuses, drawing lessons from successes in humble sphere. At the end of the sermon, Mr. Jubb stepped to the side of the pulpit and said slowly and impressively, Quote, I cannot close my sermon this morning without speaking of the horrible crime that has startled our beloved city this week ruthlessly taking from our church household two respected and esteemed members i cannot close without referring to my pain and surprise at the atrocity of the outrage a more brutal cunning daring and fiendish murder i have never heard of in all my life what must have been the person who could have been guilty of such a revolting crime one to commit such a murder must have been without heart without soul a fiend incarnate the very vilest of degraded and depraved humanity or he must have been a maniac the circumstances execution and all the surroundings cover it with mystery profound explanations and evidence as to both perpetrator and motive are shrouded in a mystery that is almost inexplicable that such a crime could have been committed during the busy hours of the day right in the heart of a populous city is passing comprehension as we ponder, we exclaim in our perplexity, why was the deed done? What could have induced anybody to engage in such a butchery? Where is the motive? When men resort to crime, it is for plunder, for gain, from enmity, in sudden anger, or for revenge. Strangely, nothing of this nature enters into this case, and again I ask, what was the motive? I believe, and I'm only voicing your feelings fully when I say that I hope the criminal will be speedily brought to justice this city cannot afford to have in its midst such an inhuman brute as the murder of andrew j borden and his wife why a man who could conceive and execute such a murder as that would not hesitate to burn the city i trust that the police may do their duty and lose no opportunity which might lead to the capture of the criminal i would impress upon them that they should not say too much and thus unconsciously assist in defeating the ends of justice. I also trust that the press, and I say this because I recognize its influence and power, I trust that it will use discretion in disseminating its theories and conclusions, and that pens may be guided by consideration and charity. I would wish the papers to remember that by casting a groundless or undeserved insinuation, that they may blacken and blast a life forever, like a tree smitten by a bolt of lightning a life which has always commanded respect whose acts and motives have always been pure and holy let us ourselves curb our tongues and preserve a blameless life from undeserved suspicions i think i have the right to ask for the prayers of this church and of my own congregation the murdered husband and wife were members of this church and a daughter now stands in the same relation to each one of you as you as church members do to each other god help and comfort her Poor stricken girls, may they both be comforted, and may they both realize how fully God is their refuge. Marshal Hilliard and his officers, after two days and two nights' work, concluded that the case was of so much importance that it was advisable to call District Attorney Hosea M. Knowlton of New Bedford, Massachusetts, into their councils, and accordingly he arrived from his home in New Bedford on Saturday morning. A short consultation was held at police headquarters, and then adjourned until the afternoon. The district attorney, Marshal Hilliard, State Officer Seaver, Mayor Coughlin, and Dr. Dolan met according to agreement in one of the parlours of the Mellon House. The marshal took all the evidence which he had collected in the shape of notes, papers, etc., together with other documents bearing on the case, into the room where the five men were closeted, and they commenced at the beginning. At the close of the conference held earlier in the afternoon, the district attorney had advised the officers to proceed with the utmost caution, and was extremely conservative in the conclusions which he found. At that time he had not been made acquainted with all the details. At the Mellon House consultation the same caution was observed. The quintet were working on one of the most remarkable criminal records in history, and were obliged to proceed slowly. The marshal began at the beginning— and continued to the end he was assisted in his explanation by the mayor and the medical examiner mr Seaver listened there were details almost without end and all of them were picked to pieces and viewed in every conceivable light considerable new evidence was introduced and then the testimony of officers not present was submitted which showed that miss lizzie borden might have been mistaken in one important particular the marshal informed the district attorney that the murder had occurred between ten minutes of eleven o'clock and thirteen minutes after eleven on thursday morning the time was as accurate as they could get it and they had spared no pains to fix it the alarm had been given by miss lizzie borden the daughter of the murdered man when she returned from the barn at the moment of the discovery she did not know that her stepmother was also dead though she explained afterwards that she thought her mother had left the house It was but a short distance from the barn to the house. Nobody had been found who had seen anybody leaving the yard of the Borden house or entering it, although a number of people who were named were sitting by their windows close by. It was also true that nobody had seen Miss Borden enter or leave the barn. She had explained that she went to the stable to procure some lead for a fishing line, which she was going to use at Warren. Here there was a stumbling block, which puzzled the district attorney and his assistants on the day of the murder miss lizzie had explained that she went to the loft of the barn for the lead and an officer who was examining the premises also went to the loft it was covered with dust and there were no tracks to prove that any person had been there for weeks he took particular notice of the fact and reported back that he had walked about on the dust covered floor on purpose to discover whether or not his own feet left any tracks he said that they did and thought it singular that anybody could have visited the floor a short time before him, and make no impression in the dust. The lower floor of the stable told no such tale, as it was evident that it had been used more frequently, and the dust had not accumulated there. The conclusion was that, in the excitement incident to the awful discovery, Miss Borden had forgotten just where she went for the lead. When she found her father lying on the lounge, she ran to the stairs and ascended three or four steps to call Maggie. Maggie is the name by which Bridget Sullivan was called by members of the family. She did not call for her stepmother, because, as she stated afterward, she did not think she was in. Then came the history of the mysterious letter. Miss Lizzie had said that on the morning of the tragedy her stepmother received a letter asking her to visit a sick friend. She knew that at about nine o'clock her stepmother went upstairs to put shams on the pillows, and she did not see her again. It was that letter which led her to believe that her stepmother had gone out. Here was stumbling block number two. The officers had searched all over the house for that letter, the Marshal said, but had failed to find any trace of it. Miss Lizzie had feared that it had been burned in the kitchen stove. Mr. Marshall's men had found other letters and fragments of letters in the waste paper basket, and had put them together piece by piece. The one letter that was wanted had not been found it was considered singular that with all the furor that had been raised over this note the woman who wrote it has not come forward before this and cleared up the mystery it was also strange that the boy who delivered the note had not made himself known it was believed that every boy in town old enough to do an errand had visited the house since the tragedy but the particular boy was kept in the background it was presumed that mrs borden's correspondent feared the notoriety which would come to her if she disclosed her identity, but it was unfortunate that she should allow any such scruples to overcome what ought to be a desire to assist in every way possible in unravelling the knot. The marshal, medical examiner and mayor then carefully rehearsed step by step the summoning of Dr. Bowen, who was not at home when the murder was committed, and his ghastly discovery on the second floor. No theory other than that Mrs. Borden was murdered first was entertained miss lizzie borden's demeanour during the many interviews which the police had with her was described at length and the story of john v morse's whereabouts was retold thorough investigation of theories advanced upon the strength of bridget sullivan's statement that the crime was committed by the portuguese employed upon the farm of andrew borden in somerset resulted in placing them with the other numerous opinions and possibilities which have been exploded by the authorities in the excitement attending the discovery of the bodies of the murdered couple inquiries directed to the domestic elicited answers to the effect that the portuguese must have done it the individual referred to was a swede labourer and marshal hilliard thereupon drove to the somerset farm the investigation there was necessarily brief in its character but such as it is satisfied the marshal that the labourer whom the sullivan woman designated as the portuguese was far removed from the house on 2nd Street at the time the murders were committed. In their persistent following of every possible clue, the authorities deemed it advisable to make an exhaustive examination regarding the whereabouts of the Swedish labourer. At the time of the tragedy, and with this end in view, another trip had been made to Somerset. The result confirmed the opinion of Marshal Hilliard. The man established a thoroughly satisfactory alibi, and the officials were forced to acquit him of the possibility of any knowledge or of complicity in the affair some time before andrew borden had purchased some property located across the river the property was owned by a number of persons heirs of a former owner and among them was one who was strangely disinclined to part with the place at least at the figures satisfactory to the other owners his dissatisfaction was made manifest to such an extent that among the stories circulated regarding the affair was one which suggested the possibility of this dissatisfied individual having some knowledge of the ones responsible for the tragedy this story although without reliable foundation it was deemed best to investigate also and accordingly the person referred to received a visit from the government officials the desired knowledge was easily secured and the fact readily established that the party in question had no connection whatever with the murder of the aged couple After this extended conference of the highest authorities in the county, it was given out that the district attorney was much pleased with the work of the police, and that an inquest would be held immediately, before Judge Josiah C. Blaisdell, of the Second District Court of Bristol, which is the Fall River Local Court. End of chapter 8